Hello, uh, welcome back to the H.P. Lovecraft Book Club. Uh, in this episode, I'll be looking at the Lurking Fear. Um, at least the first half of the Lurking Fear. I don't know, maybe I'll finish it. Maybe I'll just run through my thoughts on it. Um, it's, it's a fairly long story. I mean, compared to the ones we've been looking at. Um, about 25 pages in the Klinger Anthology. Most of the ones we've been looking at are been actually less than 10. So this one's fairly fairly long. It's also not just its length. It's got there's a lot going on in this very very interesting story. So this is kind of a part of a of a trilogy of stories Lovecraft wrote all around the same period of time. You know the end of twenty two, maybe the beginning of twenty three. Includes the lurking fear, rats in the wall, and the festival, and they all deal with uh, you know kind of. Uh, heredity in some way right um really this people coming to terms with the sins of their of their parents or their of, of an older generation in the lurking fear this is subtle it's subtly presented um you know i think most people agree that the narrator of the lurking fear is part of this family that disappeared um you know, especially because it comes up right with the rats of the wall, where it's explicitly stated that that's the case. And the festival is also very explicit that our narrator is part of a tradition going back, going back many centuries. Um, you know, maybe the festival actually—it's the deepest kind of history. I think uh, lurking fear and rats on the wall are at least in in, in more human historical scales, centuries. Uh, and the festival is implied to be almost eternal going back but they're all about uh legacies and they're you know they all have monsters they all have actually kind of swarms of monsters in them which is kind of interesting um you know various ghoul types and lurking fear and rats on the wall and, and all kinds of other strange monsters in the festival that are kind of unleashed through some sort of ritual um the locations are all very different but they're all kind of coming back to the same theme of of legacy so we're kind of back to the stories like the arthur german um, you know, in, in really trying to get at this question of like, what, what do we carry with us? What's our kind of genetic fate that, that we bring from our family and how we're really bound by that in, in some specific way. These are also very, these are all stories also that, that sort of deal with, um, scenery and setting very well. I mean, it, it helps that they're all set in different places. Lurking Fear set in the Catskills, Rats on the Wall set in, in England. And the festival is set in, in Kingsport, uh, in a, a fictional town in you know, that Lovecraft created. It was also the setting of the of uh, Terrible Man, I want to say. Terrible Man, I think, was the setting was Kingsport. I think there's one more Kingsport story later on that we'll look at that shortly. Anyways, my point is these stories all sort of go together. And I think even the next story we're going to look at after that called uh, The Shunned House, also, although not really about the personal family legacy of the narrator deals with with deep history um and, 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 and in that way so anyways lurking fear very very good story it's it's one i think people really should should not skip if they're trying to read lovecraft it's actually one of the big this and rats on the wall are two stories that really were missing i mean from the original lovecraft anthology by Klinger. i mean you could make a case obviously they, they didn't want to fit them all or make the book a thousand pages but, you know, this one, you know, you'd, you see, you'd almost have to out add, add, if I would ask the editor, like, why not include this one? It's just so central to Lovecraft's themes and, 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 and the kinds of things he was getting at, especially at this point in his career. 
But anyways, it doesn't matter now because we got the second volume of, of the anthology. So yeah, let's let's jump into this story a little bit. It's in four parts. It, it was published serially uh, in 1923 in Homebrew. This is the same magazine that published Herbert West Reanimator in the previous year. So this is pretty much, I think, came a few months after the last um, edition of Herbert West Reanimator. It was written in November 1922. Now, unlike Herbert West Reanimator, you don't have the long recaps. There, there is still a little bit of a recap in these stories, but it's, it's less noticeable. It's not as, as much of a distraction. Um, even though I sort of liked it in Herbert West Reanimator, I think, you know, it's, you could argue that it's a bit too much at times, especially in the later chapters. Here, you don't really have it at all. The story flows together much, much uh, more nicely. And there's a whole lot going on here um, in these different, different sections. So the first part of this is called The Shadow on the Chimney. Um, and, and each of these chapters deals with like a different phase of the investigation of our, of our narrator. And our narrator is an investigator. He's trying to dig up the past of, of the lurking fear. What inspired him to do this was uh, the, like the cataclysm, like a, ca a, a catastrophe that took place in, in the Catskills in this place near, called Tempest Mountain. Something horrible happened there, and it's described what that horrible thing is. And this kind of piqued his interest. He is an investigator. He's someone who's kind of gone into long-term explorations before. Uh, his two companions he takes with him to Tempest Mountain, had gone with him before on different expeditions. So he's, he's a quester, he's an investigator uh, who has dug into these things in the past. Um, but it's very clear to me, even though it's not explicit, that he has a personal relationship to this, this case. This case is special for him. I, I think it's heavily, heavily hinted here um, in a various ways that I'll, I'll get to uh, in the story, especially at the end of part one. But I think there's other parts where it's bare less stated that he is treated specially by the monsters that, that exist in the story. And that is why, he, you know, and it's, it's basically because he's part of that same family, right? But if you don't want to do that, if you, if you just want to read this as an investigator for whatever reason, wanted to dig into the happenings of the cat skills and came across this horror, you know, it's still a story about the, leg the genetic legacy of, of a family, right? In this case, kind of a backcountry Americans from the colonial era, kind of more upper class, but still people who sort of become isolated, inbred, backwater type. So we want to think of Beyond the Wall of Sleep because that, that story is set in the same place as this one that back, I think backcountry, you know, upstate New York or, or western Massachusetts, that area where Lovecraft sort of saw that as a place where, uh, you know, deviant sort of people end up kind of squatting and living and chilling out, right? Usually biracial types or people who kind of moved in and lived with the Indians and ended up suddenly in their own villages, right? Somewhat only quasi-incorporated into the mainstream civilization, right? Kind of like the tri-racial isolates we talked about earlier in this podcast that were of such interest to the eugenicists of Lovecraft's time. They were love, During Lovecraft's time, the eugenicists were interested in, of course, issues of scientific racism, but especially in America, there was a fascination with the families living in these backcountry areas, the Appalachian Mountains or whatever, and some of them were tri-racial tri isolates, meaning white, black, and Indian. Some of them just were people who sort of were a little bit inbred or kind of culturally distinct or whatever, 
had their own culture, had their own society, kind of only marginally connected to the cities on the coast or, or wherever. But eugenicists were really interested in these because they saw them as centers of crime and deviance and, and other kind of nasty, nasty things. Now, right away, I think we're, we're told that this is about him. He's got a personal relationship to this lurking fear, as he, he calls it. Um, and I think the lurking fear is not the monsters, not the things happening in the town so much, but his own personal re revelation, his realization of who he is and what his family is and the, the legacy he carries with his family, right? He says, for instance, would I to God had let them share, share the search that I might not have to bear the secret alone so long to bear it alone for fear the world would call me mad or go mad itself at the demon implications of the thing. And later on in the same paragraph, for I and I alone know what the manner of fear lurked in that spectral and desolate mountain. He seems to know something already before he really begins his investigation. Right? Um, now, one thing about this Tempest Mountain, we get a really good description of the geography of this, that we have this Tempest Mountain where the Martens mansion is. The Martenses are colonial, a colonial Dutch family that end up settling in this area. Um, they, they, we get their whole history of, of why they did this. Basically, they're fleeing British rule, so they went inland. Uh, and we have a couple other mountains here or hills that are kind of next to him. Uh, where these squatter villages live, a little bit distant from Tempest Mountain, but still kind of in the vicinity. And we also get just this description of an unwholesome landscape. This is something he's going to do a lot with in the Shunt House. I mean, that's what really comes off in the Shunt House more than anything is this feeling of just a corrupted land and corrupted soil, right? In fact, the, the revelation at the end in the Shunt House is kind of silly almost, I, I think. It's, it's, it's not one of his best kind of gotcha scary monsters at the end or it's just kind of you know it seems well it's just a big monster that's living under the house and you can kill it not as as kind of scary what we see here but it's this but what he kind of borrows from the lurking fear story is this idea of a corrupted desolate unwholesome landscape and the trees are like the centerpiece of that, these old ancient trees that just look wrong, that look, I mean, some trees are actually described as patriarch trees, you know, having been there for, for maybe centuries, and the landscape just is wrong. It's just off in some way, and that's something that's really the heart of the Shunt House, because people just feel wrong about the house, right? The history is its history, and you can dig it up and understand it a little bit, and weird things do happen in the Shunt House, but, you know, it's just... It's just it's odd. It's just people just don't want to be there, and, and, and they, that's why they shun it, right? For instance, there's very few wild creatures, right? Now, that, that turns out it's probably because they're being fed upon by uh, the monsters, because there's turns out there's a whole lot of them. Spoiler alert. Uh, hopefully you, you read this. or I mean, this story's been in print for 100 years, so whatever. But yeah, the, this unwholesome landscape, I think, is something he does really, really well in this, this story. And right away, in fact, throughout this whole story, we get different um, snippets of the history, right? And the history he's first interested in is not the Martens family so much, but rather the history of, of, this, of these squatters, right? And something, like I think, I don't remember seeing this before in any other stories, is where you get like a large press involvement. It's because something really nasty happened here, like that was, you know, even though these were 
kind of forgettable nobodies living in the these kind of hill 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 regions of of upstate New York, they still couldn't be fully. I mean, it was still such a horrific occurrence that the that the newspapers had to take account and, and begin to investigate and look into it. So there's multiple investigations here, you know, but done by by the media. Right? I don't think we've ever seen the media so conspicuous in one of Lovecraft's stories before. I think that gives it a, a nice American um, sense, right? Because obviously if something like this that he describes happens, would happen, there, there would be. The media would flock there, right? It would, be, it would be on Fox News, right? It would be uh, tragedy in the Catskills, right? What happened, right? And they'd interview police officers and it'd be a whole affair, right? And that's kind of what we have here. You know, some of these journalists have been there for, for, you know, weeks, it seemed. So anyways, we get the description of this setting. And so this is like a Dutch region, right? Quote, the place is a remote, lonely elevation in that part of the Catskills where Dutch civilization once feebly and transiently penetrated, leaving behind as it receded only a few ruined mansions and a degenerate squatter population inhabiting pitiful hamlets on isolated slopes. Normal beings seldom visit the locality till the state police were formed, and even now only infrequent troopers patrol it. Right, so there, the idea is that somehow this was originally a place that the Dutch settled, but even they kind of moved on by and large. They fled. The Martenses, of course, stay, but they stay in a different form. But other people just sort of move away. And what's left are these degenerate, inbred populations, right? But out of this, you get uh, this wonderful discussion of, of, of vernacular traditions, right? We see these so often in Lovecraft stories here, maybe more than any other story up to this point that we've looked at, where we just get the depth of of mythology and folklore and local traditions and local legends shaping the investigation, right? Our, our narrator is trying to get answers and he goes to the library, he goes to the news, you know, newspapers, he does the official things, but he also spends a lot of time digging up from the local people what he could about the Martens mansion. And one thing that's, that's, you know, part of these local traditions seems to be true as the story unveils is well you know for whatever reason tempest mountain is, gets its name because the high number of, of thunderstorms that take place there right so there's a lot of thunderstorms but the relationship between the thunderstorms and the the terror of the mountain which all the local people know something about the kidnappings the vanishings of people the the, the loss of wildlife all these things seem associated in some way to the frequent thunderstorms that gave Tempest Mountain its name. Now, another thing that's kind of revealed in these local legends is is this belief that uh, the the horror is the Mar ghost of the Martens family, right? So this is sort of the red herring we get for the first chunk of the story is that the Martenses have lived on as specters, as ghosts of some sort, haunting Tempest Mountain and the regions, right? And, and of course, we're getting reminded here of their genetic identifier, which is very, very important. And that's they have they have um, uh, uh, the, the heterochromia in their eyes where they have the, the two eyes of different colors. Right. Um, and that's that's a way for us to identify them. The monsters at the end as the descendants of the of the Martenses. But that's not really revealed to the final final um, 
passages of the story. But that's their physical feature. It's their important physical feature, right? Um, so we finally get the story of the catastrophe that sort of brought our investigator to, to Tempest Mountain. And it has to do, obviously, with, with lightning. Um, the way it's described here, basically the squatter's village, or one of the squatter's villages, because some of the squatters still are around, but one of the squatter's villages was destroyed by a storm, but the storm itself doesn't account for the extent and the nature of the injuries of, uh, of the dead squatters. Also, the fact that many bodies of the squatters were missing. Uh, quote, death was indeed here. The ground under one of the squatter's villages had caved in after a lightning stroke, destroying several of the Maldorius shanties. But under this property damage was superimposed an organic devastation, which paled it to insignificance. Of the possible 75 natives who had inhabited this spot, not one living specimen was visible. The disordered earth was covered with blood and human debris, bespeaking too vividly the ravages of demon teeth and talons, yet no visible trails led away from the carnage. That some hideous animal must be the cause, everyone quickly agreed, nor did any tongue now revive the charges that such cryptic deaths merely for merely the sword murders common in decadent communities. The charge was revised only when about 25 of the estimated population was found missing from the dead." End quote. So there's really no good explanation for how 25 of them could kill 50. Um, where the other 25 went if there was just an animal attack, which seems preposterous on the, on the surface. This is a great example of forgetting. The, the authorities just instantly trying to forget anything more horrific than you know, they just explain it. Oh, it's an animal, right? When no one really can believe that. The local people don't believe it. Uh, you know, the police probably can't believe it, but it's the only explanation that lets them, lets them sleep at night, right? So it seems what happened is 50 were killed and 25 others were dragged away um, violently. So the media attention here as re after the result of this is, is intense and even in Lovecraft's kind of perverse imagination where vast numbers of, of the people of the country are, are simply degenerate backwoods people that aren't relevant even he has to admit that when you, you kill a hundred of them right that's going to bring attention and people are going to be aware of it and they're not that they're not so forgettable that the mass death the, the mass murder the mass disappearance of large numbers of them would not um, spark intention of at least the local press Right? But it's been three weeks and the press haven't found any answers. They run out of kind of the, the, the easy to sell kind of uh, front page scandal stories that, they, that would, they, could, they could sell. So they start to leave. But he stays and he begins his own personal inquiry into it. And our narrator comes at it with a hypothesis of his own. Um, and the way it's said is this, quote, I believe that the thunder called the death demon out of some fearsome secret place and that that demon's solid entity or vaporous pestilence I meant to see. So he just thinks there's a relationship, kind of like the people that live there seem to think there's some relationship between the thunderstorms and the awakening of, of some kind of demon that's associated in some way with the Martens family. Right, and we know that is because he, the first, uh, when he first goes there, his effort, his investigation involves sleeping over just doing the haunted house sleepover kind of thing so he goes to the 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 house the old room of yan martens in his in his in his um in his mansion that's been abandoned and he does his vigil there and here's another piece of evidence that definitely this is about him 
um, they, they're in this room and he sees this. Opposite the large window was an enormous Dutch fireplace with scriptural tiles representing the prodigal, prodigal son. And opposite the narrow windows was a spacious bed built into the wall, end quote. So the fact that he mentions the prodigal son here obviously um, seems to me suggest that he's the prodigal son. He's the one returning, right? He, and he's finally being reunited with the Martens family, right? We don't really get the story of how he, his line breaks off because the history of the Martens given later in the story is that they just sort of vanish into the hills or go away and no one really knows where die out something you know local legends will fill in the details how he kind of fits into the family tree is not clear but it's gotta he's gotta be connected in in, in some way so they're resting in the bed and we get some drama here about like who's going to stay awake and who's on watch who's on what watch or whatever um but the plan is they they all they move this bed to the center of the room and he sleeps in the middle the two friends George Bennett and William Toby, we get their names, even though they're only around for a few lines. They're on either side of them. And hes they're just going to do this vigil and watches. Um, but the idea is if they're in the center of the room, there'll always be kind of someone who can kind of get a look at the, at the whole, you know, at the, at the situation. They can't be snuck up on them or whatever. That's the hope. Um, and what happens is basically... He's kind of sleeping on the arm of one of them, and the other guy disappears. And then he turns around and he finds that the arm he's sleeping on is detached, so the rest of his body was taken away. So the two, Toby and, and Bennett, the two people we're with, were killed by something in, over the course of the night, and and he was left alive. Right again, another strong piece of evidence that he was part. He's part of the clan. He's part of the Martins family in in some way. So they they, they don't want to kill him. But also, interestingly, I, I don't quite know how to interpret it. Obviously, there's storms all the time on Tepes Mountain. I don't know if there's really such a place like that in any kind of, in the Catskills, a place that has more frequent thunderstorms than other places. A locality being that precise, I don't think that's how weather works, but who cares? It's Lovecraft. Um, but um, during one of these, the, the patriarchal, the Patriarch of the Twisted Trees is destroyed in the lightning. I think there's some kind of symbolism there, given that so much of this story is about family and legacy and the Patriarch of the family and, and kind of what he's passed on to, to later generations. Right? So, but the Patriarch tree is, is destroyed. I think, I think that's symbolic in some way. Right? Now, the chapter of the title, or the title of the chapter is The Shadow on the Chimney, because he sees it after he notices that his two friends are dead. He sees a shadow of the monster on the on the on the chimney, right? And he can't describe it. "Quote: um, A blasphemous abnormality from hell's nethermost craters, a nameless, shapeless abomination, which no mind can fully grasp and no pen even partially describe." So, his first effort to investigate this just by doing a vigil in the in the mansion is a complete catastrophe, where he loses two of his companions. So the second part, the second chapter is called A Passer in the Storm. And uh, he escapes from the mansion after that, uh, that first horrible night, that horrible vigil. Um, and, you know, he has to kind of figure out his next step. He's not going to give up his investigation, though. He's kind of committed to, to figuring it out. 
but he has to kind of uh, rethink a little bit his strategy, right? And he's he, he's trying to figure out is this creature, this monster that killed his two companions, is it spectral? Is it organic? Had it once been organic and, and became, you know, like it's John Martensis' ghost in some way, right? You know, the fact that it was at Jan Martensis' bedroom that it took place kind of lends some evidence to the ghost light, ghost thesis, but he doesn't really know. And he's, he's still kind of got this curiosity for the investigation. He, uh, we get, uh, I had already decided not to abandon the quest for the lurking fear. And in my rash ignorance, it seemed to me that uncertainty was worse than enlightenment. However terrible the latter might prove to be, end quote. And of course, this is the typical answer we get for the questers in Lovecraft's story all the time, in, in contrast to the forgetters, right? Now, at the end of the story, he changes his mind on this pretty decisively. But at the time, he's still saying, well, the benefits of finding out are, are, are too great. We must we're just dig into it. So he, he basically hires a new companion, a new investigator to help him out. This is going to be a guy named Arthur Monroe, a dark, lean man of 35 whose education, taste, intelligence, and temperament all seem to mark him as one not bound to conventional ideas and experience. End quote. So essentially, he's a curious guy. He's another investigator type who is going to uh, be his good companion throughout his, his search. Right? But again, spoiler alert, he's not going to last too long. At least the other guys, Bennett and Toby, got to go on some adventures with our investigator previous to this. Our Monroe, he doesn't, he doesn't make it more than a couple weeks, I think. But they don't initially just say, well, let's go on the vigil again. Let's go back in the house and try it again. Instead, they said, we need to know more about the history of the Martenses in the, in the area. And actually, this chapter is less about the history of the Martenses and more the history of the local community and the villages and the squatters the quote-unquote mountain mongrels that, that dwell in the area. But anyways, Monroe convinces him that they need to dig into the local history a bit more, and they begin their, their local historical and geographical research, geography being so important in this, in this story. Um, so they do try to find out something about the Martenses, but this chapter just talks a lot more about these mountain mongrels, right? What's so interesting about these people is that they don't leave. They're the ones who stay behind, right? So they know something. They have some of the history. They have some of the story in their collective minds, right? But also there's the strange mystery of, of why do they stay in the midst of all of these horrors? Now, these, these local legends are of, of various utility. The narrator wants to sometimes kind of throw them away. I, I always think we need to trust the local legends whenever we read a Lovecraft story because they tend to be right. Um, for instance, he writes, nothing could be gained from the scared and witless shanty dwellers. In the same breath, they called it a snake and a giant, a thunder devil and a bat, a vulture and a walking tree. We did, however, deem ourselves justified in assuming that it was a living organism, highly susceptible to electric storms. And although certain of the stories suggested wings, we believe that the version for open spaces made land locomotion the more probable theory. Right. So there's some truth to them. Right. Now, we also get here a little bit of Lovecraft's kind of tendency to embrace eugenical thinking about these types of people, calling them simple animals, descending on the evolutionary scale, fearing outsiders, inbred. Right. Uh, suspicious of all outsiders. 
Um, despite the fact that they are being kidnapped and, and murdered regularly, that they, they just keep their, their doors closed. Um, but, you know, this, that's sort of a, the impression of these types of communities in the, in the early 20th century. But they get a lot of information. Like one piece of information they, they get out of these people was that, again, kind of connecting the thunderstorms with the monsters. Monster, monsters. It's not clear to the narrator yet, which it is. He's still thinking it's just one. But that it's associated with summer when there's thunderstorms, not in winter when there aren't uh, thunderstorms. So after they do this investigation, they decide to do their field work again. And so it's Monroe and the narrator decide to go to the abandoned the squatter hamlet, the one that was destroyed um, previously, the one that had the catastrophe, the one that was completely wiped out. So they're going to just do their vigil there this time, um, hope, hoping for better luck. Um, and so they, they go in there, they investigate the cottages, and they find hillside dugouts. And, and some of these villages are literally dug into the, to the, to the hills here. There's a couple of hills described here. Maple Hill, Cone Mountain, which are a few miles from Tempest Mountain. And, and, and there's where the squatters are living and, and their villages are sort of dug into the side of these mountains. And these diggins, these kind of what are later going to be described as molehills, are of course going to be very, very crucial to the final revelation in the story. Um, but they search for bodies in these, in these dugouts. Oh, I, I just, the landscape here is so beautifully described. And, you know, if you got the Klinger edition of this, or if you're lucky and have the original, or have access to the original, because um, these pictures in this anthology were drawn from the original homebrew. They're by Clark Ashton Smith, and they're just crazy and wild and interesting. And they focus on the trees, and they focus on the hills and the landscape. It's, it's really the focus of Clark Ashton Smith's interest in the story is geographical as well. It's not even the monsters or the narrator in his investigations. It's really the focus is on the, on the landscape. And I think that's right. That's what it should be, because that's where Lo what Lovecraft focuses so much on, and it's, it's some of his strongest writing of this type in, that we've seen. But they spend the whole day there, and then there's uh, another storm coming, right? So they end up having to kind of find shelter, so they hide into one of the, the small um, hovels, one of these small buildings that the squatters who are not all gone, all gone had, had called their home. And so they, they're... The storm has come and they're just sitting around smoking and talking and kind of comparing notes and trying to work out the mystery, ask their questions, um, thinking about that first vigil, the one in the Martens mansion and how that went so bad. He asks these different mysteries and things, you know, just just chilling out and, and trying to work it through while they while they wail the storm. Now, just like the first night, the one in the Martens mansion, lightning strikes a tree and destroys a tree. This time it's the tree, a lone tree, the lone tree on Maple Hill that gets struck. So it's another kind of standalone notable tree. And Monroe goes to look out the window. And after a little bit of, a, of time, the narrator is kind of like, well, where'd you go, buddy? And he's just, can you just look out the window? Uh, the narrator goes and checks on him and, it, and he, Monroe's dead. Not only is he dead, his entire face is ripped off. Quote, then I playfully shook him and turned him around. I felt the strangling tendrils of a cancerous horror whose roots reached into indimitable past and fathomless abysses for the night that broods beyond time. For Arthur Monroe was dead and on his face 
remained of his chewed and gouged head, there was no longer a face. So, chapter three, what the red glare meant. So, I think at this point in the story, you know, our narrator really should have found a different guy, but now, you know, the local people realize that everyone who tries to help him dies, so he has to go kind of, you know, dig to the real, like, homeless people or something to, to help him. That the Lovecraft doesn't go that way. Instead, he kind of goes off on his own to continue his investigation. And as it starts out, he, we, we kind of get a date here, November 8th, 1921, it, where he says, this is where I kind of started to lose it because that's when I started to dig alone and idiotically at the grave of Jan Martin. So he, he kind of goes to the source. He's going to solve the mystery by digging up the grave of Jean Martin's. Uh, it's not clear how or why this will work. It's not clear to the narrator either. It's just all he can think of, of doing after the death of all of his companions. He doesn't even really deal with the body of Arthur Monroe. I think he just buries him because he kind of just pretends that he wandered off on his own and the local people, I guess, believe him or not, but it doesn't really matter um, that much. Um, so anyways, what's he going to do now? Uh, Well, there's a lot here early on in this chapter, what the Red Glare met, meant, emphasizing just his kind of creeping madness uh, based on his experiences. Quote, that shock of the mansion had done something to my brain, and I could think only of the quest for a horror now grown to cataclysmic stature in my imagination, a quest which the faith of Arthur Marone made me vow to keep silent and solitary. Uh, and then we get a, another description of the landscape. It's just so wonderful. Um, quote, baleful primal trees of unholy size, age, and grotesqueness leered above me like the pillars of some hellish druidic temple, muffling the thunder and hushing the clawed, clawing wind and admitting but little rain. Beyond the scarred trunks in the background, illuminated by faint flashes of filtered lightning, rose the damp, ivied stones of the deserted mansions, while somewhere near was the abandoned Dutch garden, whose walks and beds were polluted with white fungus, foited, overnourished vegetation that never saw daylight. Beautiful. It really is like the Shunned House. I think the Shunned House does this even better, I think, but uh, he's definitely getting close to that here. Um, I think a lot of people like Lovecraft for his very, very, uh, you know, fascinating ways of describing monsters, landscapes, settings, uh, vill old villages, whatever, towns like Innsmouth. He really excels at these kinds of things. So anyways, he finally gets to the, the grave of John Martens and he starts digging there. Now, John Martens dies in 1762. And now we finally get the history of the Martenses. We're, we're over halfway through the story. And finally, Lovecraft decides, or the narrator decides, to give us the history of the Martenses. And I think this itself is evidence of the close relationship between the narrator and the Martenses. Because he's, you know, it's not until he has to reveal this part of the story that he does. He wants to kind of hide it. He, he, he wants to have other explanations or he wants to keep the Martens family history kind of subtle, um, not fully revealed. Uh, now, in The Rats on the Wall, this is, this is done through this, this envelope, this letter that, gets, that vanishes during the Civil War. So there's really no way of getting that history. That history is lost to everyone. Uh, and our narrator has to dig it up over time and actually literally dig into that history. This guy seems to have already come in with certain knowledge about the Martenses because he gives us this information now. The original Martens uh, mansion was built in 1670. 
by a New Amsterdam merchant who didn't like the handover to the British, which happens, of course, uh, after one of the Anglo-Dutch wars. Uh, during, I guess it would be the reign of, of Charles II or something. Um, and he didn't like the British rule, so instead of going back to the Netherlands, though, he goes inland. And of course, the Dutch dominated the landscape of upstate New York, right? You got all the large manors in upstate New York. Uh, you know, I don't know how far they went up or how big they were in the Catskills, but there's these large land grants that were given to these Dutch, um, essentially aristocrats during the period of Dutch rule, and they sort of, sort of carried on after the British period. Um, but he moves up there. He goes up to the Catskills to, to get away from it all, right? To have the solitude. And he seemed to like also the unpleasant scenery. So there's something weird about the Martenses. The same way the Delapores, even before they kind of vanish and become ghouls, there's something kind of creepy about them. I mean, there was something already kind of really wild about the Delapores. Something kind of weird about the Martenses too, back to their origin. And part of it is that he liked this unpleasant scenery which Lovecraft spent, you know, two chapters telling us is really, really nasty and, and kind of vicious um, and insidious. He liked the thunderstorms even, you know, like who, who, who likes thunderstorms that much that they want to live in a place that has them in an almost preternaturally common uh, cycle. Now, pretty much right after the first generation, we get a story of degeneration. A quote of Jarrett Martens's descendants, that's the, Jarrett Martens is the, is the founder. Uh, less is known of himself than of himself. Since they were all reared in hatred of the English civilization and trained to shun said such of the colonists as accepted it, their life was exceedingly secluded. The people declared that their isolation had made them heavy of speech and comprehension. In appearance, all were marked by the peculiar inherited dissimilarity of eyes, one generally being blue and the other brown. Their social context grew fewer and fewer, Till at last they took to intermarrying with the numerous menial classes about the estates. Many of the crowded family degenerated, moved across the valley, and merged with the mongrel populations, which was later to produce the pitiful squatters. End quote. Now, this somewhere in here may explain how the line of the narrator comes to be. You know, he's like an off, one of offspring of some of these. So we get isolation and degeneracy, two two things that Lovecraft often associates um, together. Now, only one of these characters in the Martensis seems to break free even a small degree and that the, the, the most important of these is Jan Martens Jan Martens he's the one that's given his grave dug up um, by our narrator and he sort of wanted to break free of this family a little bit so he uh, joins the Seven Years War so um, he fought he fights in the French and Indian War actually so he starts fighting in so he started he fought for the whole step uh, the whole French and Indian War in Europe. Now, the French and Indian War was fought from like 1754 to 1760. Uh, the Seven Years War, like 1758, no, no 56 to, to, to 63. They are, they're basically the same war, but the French and War a little bit earlier. The Seven Years War was the final resolution a few years later. But by, by 1760, the fighting died down in North America with the fall of, of Canada and Quebec. But he fought for the whole length of that war. And I just did a series on my mainstream podcast about uh, the works of Francis Parkman. And uh, he wrote all about the Seven Years' War uh, for, you know, at length. I, you know, hundreds of pages about that. I was just, just working on that stuff. Um, but anyways, he was more interested in the outside world. Um, 
And although he had the same kind of two eyes, the dissimilar eyes, because he was out there in the world, he ends up being hated by the Martensis. So their isolation, their degeneracy becomes so great that they don't even want anything to do with this man who just was out fighting in the broader world. Um, so anyways, in 1763, a friend of, of Jean Martens kind of finds out he hasn't heard from Jan for a while. So he goes to investigate and they go to visit the Martenses and, and they say, well, he was struck by lightning. Right. And he doesn't really buy it. The friend doesn't buy this. So they bring in the police and investigate it and they find um, Martens's like body and they found like the wound basically he was crushed he was murdered so Jan Martens was murdered for being too out there uh, in the in the world so this combined with the isolation of the Martens family just deepens this feeling of of, of deepens the the rumors and the local traditions that kind of spill up about the about the Martens family growing legends quote meanwhile there grew up around the mansion in the mountain a body of diabolic legendary the place was avoided with doubly assiduousness and invested with every whispered myth tradition could supply. It remained unvisited until 1816 when the continued absence of light was noted by the squatters. Um, and then when they get there, they find the house deserted. So essentially from the time of the murder of Jan Martens to 1816, you know, there's almost no contact between the Martenses and, and the local population. Prior to this, they interbred and married with those local people but now they stop and so that's like 50 years of basically no contact and by that point they were gone they vanished right no skeletons no bodies just they left right and in, in fact they've they multiplied greatly that's the other weird thing here despite not having any you know bringing in any women or, or from the population to, to breed with, they, their population grew, evidence being the kind of improvised penthouses that they added to the building. They added rooms to the house to, uh, to supply rooms for the growing population of the Martenses. But in any case, they are gone uh, by 1816, a century prior to the events of the story. So we return to the grave digging. This was all just uh, flashback the story that he knew, finally telling the story of the Martenses. And he goes, he goes back to the grave digging. He's digging, digging, digging. Finally, he falls through the ground. Instead of finding the grave, he falls through and lands uh, into a tunnel, right? So he's in these tunnels underground, right? And as he's searching through these tunnels, he sees in the distance a couple lights, like eyes. He hears things. But the, most importantly, he sees this, these eyes and he sees a claw. Quote, the eyes approached, yet the thing that bore them, I could distinguish only a claw. But what a claw, right? Now, he's not killed at this point. He probably wouldn't have been because if they wanted to kill him, they could have killed him on the first night and he stayed in the house. But instead, what happens is lightning hits and it smashes in the tunnel, killing, apparently, this creature, right? And he's able to get away. And when he gets up, he's able to climb out of the tunnels, get back to the surface. And he looks at the distance and he sees a red glare. So this is the title of the part, of, of part three, of chapter three, what the red glare meant. And this is really well done. I think Lovecraft handles this brilliantly. 
because you read this like, what's this red glare? It's not until the last lines of this chapter that even mentions the red glare, but it's really well set up. Because up to this point, you really don't have any reason to believe that there's more than one of these things. And the way he explains how our narrator realizes that it's not a soul creature is, is wonderfully done, I think. Because he was face to face with this creature in the tunnels. He thinks it's killed by the lightning bolt. Gets to the surface, sees the red glare. No big deal, right? What's the red glare? It's just some light over in the distance. But he finally is able to ask the local, you know, squatters, the local population, what was that? And they say that village was attacked by the horror, right? And they they fight it off and, and end up kind of burning down a, a building in the chaos of that, you know, while they're fighting them off. Quote, in a hamlet 20 miles away, an orgy of fear had followed the bolt, which brought me above ground. And the nameless thing had dropped from an overhanging tree into a weak roofed cabin. It had done a deed, but the squatters had fired the cabin in frenzy before it could escape. It had been doing that deed at the very moment when the earth caved in on the thing with the claw and the eyes. So there's at least two, right, of them. There's not just one. And if there's two, there's probably many, many more. Um, and the fact that the Martens mansion was overcrowded when they fled and moved into the tunnels where there's a lot more space for them to breed and, and expand and become, you know, chuds, uh, you know, the evidence was there, but uh, I still think Lovecraft kind of really sets it up well that, that you and him realize at the same time that, you know, wow, there's, there's at least two of them. So there's probably a lot more. And yes, it's very clear now we're not dealing with specters or ghosts of Jan Martens or vengeful wraiths or something. We're dealing with chuds, essentially, right? Um, a lot of stories about chuds out there, of course. Uh, I just watched this movie called Raw Meat, which is from the 70s, set in, in London, about people living kind of like, about ton, like people were building the subway back in like the 1870s who got trapped under there and they became essentially chuds of course you got the movie chud uh in the gunslinger or in the dark tower novels you have all sorts of of, of these people that are called uh, uh slow mutants in the dark tower but they're the same kind of uh radioactive mutants who kind of interbred and lived below ground their kind of stories developed in various dark tower novels so a lot of these this is kind of part of pop culture right the underground tunnel people right and uh, you know morlock goes back to the morlocks of course but that's what we're dealing with here. So anyways, the last part, part four, the horror in the eyes. I think you know what the horror in the eyes is. It's the mismatched eyes. So uh, having realized that there are many of these um, multiple creatures, um, pretty much he figures out right away there's many of them. Uh, he experiences greater and greater sense of terror um, while staying on Tempest Mountain, but he kind of wants to go back and finish his job of grave digging. All right, but but he also kind of visits the hamlet, uh, kind of retrapes his steps, sees the places where where Arthur Monroe was killed, kind of just going back on it. A, a lot of this this chapter actually is just sort of getting to the final uh, visual. But to set it up, really, what's important here? 
is not like any kind of secret you find in the grave of Jan Martens. That's not it. It's just the geography again. That's what's so key. The key revelation in this section of the book is just the geography. So, quote, presently as I gazed abstractly at the moonlit panorama, my eye became attracted at, by something singular in the name or in the nature and arrangement of certain topographical elements. Without having any exact knowledge of geology, I had from the first been interested in the odd mounds and hummocks of the region. I had noticed that they were pretty widely distributed around Tempest Mountain, although less numerous on the plains than near the hilltop itself, where the prehistoric laeation had doubtless formed feebler opposition to its striking and fantastic caprice. Now in the light of that low moon, which cast long weird shadows, it struck me forcibly that the various points and lines of the mound system had a peculiar relation to the summit of Tempest Mountain. The summit was undeniably a, cent, undeniably a center from which the line or rows of points radiated indefinitely or irregularly, as if the unwholesome Martens mansion had grown visible tentacles of terror. End quote. So a couple of things here. One is the geography of this area around Tempest Mountain is man-made, or at least, you know, chud-made, uh, you know, because these are set up as a network. Right, and the visual here of the tentacles, the network of, of tunnels. He describes them as molehills. Of course, molehills are networks of, of, of hills that are decided, are, are, are created, right? And I guess they're, they, molehills kind of become networks, nodes in, in the mole network, I guess. I guess, but that's the realization he, he has is that, wow, if there's molehills, we're not talking about just two, we're talking about maybe hundreds or more of them. Right. He says at one point, two had been killed, perhaps that finished it, but still there remained that burning determination to reach the innermost secret of the fear, which I had once more come to deem definite, material, and organic. Right. Obviously, we're not dealing with, with wraiths anymore. But you gotta, it's really wishful thinking when you see that the whole geography of this region around Tempest Mountain is, is artificial, right, with these molehills set up to be a network of communication and mobility um, for these these creatures these tunnel dwellers so he just sets himself up to watch and to look and he he does this and there's a lightning strike another thunderstorm and he see there's a lightning flash which is awakens these and then he sees them crawl out you know of these molehills quote seething stewing surging bubbling like serpent slime it rolled up and out of that yawning hole spreading like a septic contagion and streaming from the cellar at every point of egress streaming out to scatter through the accursed mighty midnight forests and to instrude fear madness and death god knew how many there were there must have been thousands to see them to see the stream of them in that faint intermittent lightning was shocking end quote i mean just great visual here because he, it's dark but every time there's a lightning, he gets like a glimpse of these things crawling out of the hills and thousands of them kind of rampaging the landscape. Right. How this could have been hit, hidden for so long is not really explained. It doesn't matter. It's just the, the great uh, climax of the story, right? And we're also revealed one way they survive is that they're essentially cannibals. They're, they're eating their own, another kind of common theme in chud stories of course is that they have to kind of resort to cannibalism to survive they quote make a meal of in the custom fashion of a weaker companion others snapped up what it left and ate with slavering relish 
So uh, he, he's, he's got the answers to his questions. So what do you do with it? If you're a, a Lovecraft investigator and you've, you break all bonds of rationality to answer your deepest questions about what is out there, you know, what do you do? And you find out you go mad, <laughs> you nearly go mad. What do you do with that information that once you realize it? Well, um, you try to forget it right that's the proper choice and that's what our narrator tries to do right now it's not explained why yet it's because he does shoot one of these he, i forgot to mention he does some shooting one of these he doesn't kind of he comes back to that in the final page lines the final sentences of the story but he says first you know i'll tell you what i did and it's basically he tries to abolish the memory of tempest mountain of the martens mansion of these molehills of these creatures he just tries to forget it. So he, he literally, he, you know, I don't know how he got this legally, got the legal right to do this. Maybe the local police know enough that they're just like, do it. You know, we're glad someone's finally doing this. But he sends for Albany for a gang of men to blow up the Martens mansion. The top of Tempest Mountain, all the Moundboroughs, all the molehills, and certain overnourished trees. So he destroys anything that freaks him out about this. So the molehills trees which seem to be part of this network tempest mountain itself and the martens mansion that's going to take a whole lot of dynamite i don't know if this guy's rich or what i mean how is he paying for this but his hope here is to abolish this but he says i don't know like there's a lot of them and you know just plugging the molehills doesn't kill the moles necessarily and who knows maybe there's somewhere in Africa or in the Amazon or in China somewhere. The same thing exists. If it ha could happen here, it could happen anywhere, I suppose. So these things are probably somewhere else. Um, so that's why he can't sleep. He can't, you know, you know, he's going crazy. It's deeper than that, though. And here's where we're back to kind of the personal relationship. Um, it's only in the final paragraph of the story that we get a very clear description of them. Quote, the object was nauseous. A filthy whitish gorilla thing with sharp yellow fangs and matted fur. It was the ultimate product of mammalian degeneration, the frightful outcome of isolated spawning, multiplication, and cannibal nutrition above and beyond the ground, the embodiment of all that snarling chaos and grinning fear that lurked behind life. It had looked at me as it died, and its eyes had the same odd quality that marked those other eyes which had stared at me underground and excited certain recollections. One eye was blue and the other brown. They were the dissimilar Martens eyes of old legends. And I knew in one inundating, inundating cataclysm of voiceless horror what had become of the vanished family, the terrible and thunder-crazed house of Martens, which, as I'm suggesting, he was most likely a part of that family in some way, right? In fact, he seems to have known that the monster he saw in the tunnel had the dissimilar eyes. Because he compares these dissimilar eyes to the ones he saw in the tunnel. But at the, in that chapter, he doesn't mention that they were just some more eyes. So he saves the, the shocking punchline for the final chapter, of course. We understand why, for narrative reasons, for the, for the punch. But yeah, it seems he, he sort of already knew that it's, it was the Martenses prior to the events of the final chapter. So that's uh, The Lurking Fear. Um, the first of a trio of stories we're going to read dealing with ancestry and the legacy of, of one's family. Um, they all kind of come at this theme in different ways. I think this one is more really about denial in many ways. Uh, 
the, the narrator's in denial about his own heritage, I think. Um, in Rats of the Wall, a little bit less so. In fact, it's someone who fully embraces his legacy, even going so far as to change his name back to the old way of spelling it, the old world way of spelling it. And in the festival, even more. You have someone totally on board with, uh, with the way their family does stuff. So these are all kind of thematically tied together. I'm really excited to talk about these three stories. Some of my favorite Lovecraft tales. So anyways, uh, yeah, I ended up doing it in one episode. I'm glad. I'm glad I did that. Um, so anyways, uh, let me know what you think. Send me your own comments, your own thoughts about The Lurking Fear. If there's anything I missed, uh, if there's any uh, thing I misinterpreted or, or anything you want to disagree with me about, please let me know. Um, I think this story is important for it's stunning geography. It's use of geography in the landscape. Um, never done this well up to this point in Lovecraft's writings. Later stories maybe do it good as well, but this is really notable. A step up in the way he uses the landscape of the area. Um, in other stories, like in the Shunned House, he's going to use the, the, you know, the architecture. But we can look forward to that later. Uh, yeah, and, and a lot of great stuff just about, the, about eugenics. We're, we're kind of returning to those Catskill people that we met in, uh, in the Beyond the Wall Sleep. The squatters, local vernacular traditions, local legends, as well as like the official records, how they have to combine to tell the full story. And once again, the local legends were more or less right about everything. Um, so... Not 100%, but mostly right. So next up, next up will be, I'm pretty sure it's Rats on the Wall. Uh, yeah, the Rats on the Wall will be next. Um, yeah, so I'm looking forward to that. That'll be a one episode one too. If I can do this one in one episode, I can do Rats on the Wall in one as well. So uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about Rats on the Wall with you next time. Uh, I will see you then. Thanks for, for listening.